wanted to talk this morning about discovering Christ in the Psalms because that's immensely important. It was immensely important to the New Testament authors. It was immensely important to Jesus, and it should be immensely important to us. Um, And so I'm going to pray for us, and then I want us to look at a few verses out of Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. And then I want us to talk about this really important subject because when you open the Psalms, you and I need to know how to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to kind of go through, well, what are we looking for? How can I know that I'm properly reading the Psalms? And I hope that at the end of this lesson, you'll go away with a desire to read the Psalms both Christocentrically and experientially. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for every word that you have breathed out, and we thank you especially for the book of Psalms. We thank you that you've given us this inspired hymn book. We thank you that in it you reveal all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you speak so clearly in the Psalms. And we thank you for the New Testament epistles and gospels in which we learn how to read the Psalms the way you intended us to read them. And so we pray that you would bless abundantly this lesson, that this would not be lost on us, that this would not be merely intellectual, but that this would be something that we would, by your grace and by your spirit, put into practice for growth in grace and holiness and Christ-likeness and a deeper knowledge of you, Lord Jesus. So we pray that you would please bless this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, and there... The writer in the introductory verses has given us something of the glory of Jesus. He's the brightness of the Father's glory. He's the exact representation of the Father's person. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He by himself makes purification for our sins. And he's greater than the angels, the writer of Hebrews says, because he has a greater name than they. And he has a greater name than the angels because he has a better inheritance than the angels. And now, as the writer comes to explain why it is that the Son has a better inheritance than angels, he says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now, before I go any further, um, you are going to find a litany of Old Testament quotes in Hebrews 1 and 2. And this is the first of those quotes. And so in some sense, this is the most important. Now, where is the writer of Hebrews uh, quoting from or citing? What is he citing when he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you? He is citing Psalm 2. That is there in Psalm 2, the second Psalm. You don't have to go far Into the Psalms. If you're one of those people like me and you start out reading your Bible, you don't make it very far often. You definitely quit by numbers and then jump around for the rest of the year. And the Psalms are often the same way. We get through several of the Psalms and then we just jump around. But if if you are a spiritually minded man or woman, no doubt you have gotten through Psalm 2 at least 10 to 50 times because it's right there. You only have to read two Psalms and you've read Psalm 2. And the writer of Hebrews says Psalm 2, at least in part, is God the Father speaking to God the Son about the Son. So it's not about you. It's not about David. The writer of Hebrews says, to which of the angels did the Father ever say, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the writer of Hebrews is giving us a very clear principle at the outset that at least some of the Psalms or some part of some of the Psalms is about Christ. And he's giving us more than that. He's telling us that in this case, some of the Psalms and or at least part of some of the Psalms are a dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. That's super important. So there you have the first one. Now notice that as he goes on, he will next quote Psalm 45, a a clear messianic psalm. When we talk about messianic psalms, which psalms are about the Messiah, almost everyone that's orthodox will admit Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm, there's some in between here, but definitely 89 and 110 are the Messianic Psalms because they are so clearly and explicitly speaking about Jesus. Well, here, notice that the writer of Hebrews alludes to Psalm 45 in verse 8. Uh, He says, but of the Son, he says, still speaking about the Father's declaration, the Father says of, and maybe a better translation is to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So at least that portion, I would argue all of Psalm 45, is about the Son of God. It's about Jesus. And that here the Father is telling the Son and and calling the Son God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so you see that in that, uh, the writer of Hebrews, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is declaring to us that Psalm 45 is about Christ. Now notice the next one in verses 10 through 13. I won't read it in full, but uh, a little harder to get. If you read Psalm 102, I think without this, none of us would see Christ explicitly in that. I think a lot of this that we're going to talk about is true, that if we didn't have the New Testament, we didn't have the Spirit of God at work in us, when we read these portions of Scripture, we wouldn't get it. Remember Jesus in Luke 24, when he's walking with the two on the Emmaus Road, and then again later to the disciples in the same chapter, has to open the Scriptures to show them in Moses and the Psalms and the Prophets everything concerning himself, and then he has to open their understanding. So they have to have the scriptures open by Christ, then they have to have their understandings open, which means in and of ourselves, we can't see these things. So it's not a problem of, well, was that really the original intent, or you know, did they add this ending to it, or are they just making some application to Jesus? No, it was always what it is. Jesus, and Edmund Clowney puts this so well, He says, um, it's not like we have to open one door in the Old Testament um, and then we close that door and then we walk down a corridor and we open another door. And then when we open that door and walk in, we're in the New Testament and it's it's a different um, a different revelation. It's all the same revelation about Christ. That's what Jesus teaches us in Luke 24. That's what the writer of Hebrews teaches us. Notice in verses 10 through 12, he cites the end of Psalm 102, you, Lord, in the, uh, laid the foundation of the world. He, so there the Father is saying to the Son, you, Jehovah, 
Yahweh is saying to Yahweh, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. They will be changed, but your years will have no end. So there again, the father speaking to the son still. And then notice in verse 13, he is going to give us the most cited psalm in the New Testament. Who can tell me without cheating? What's the most cited psalm in the New Testament? Psalm 110. Um, Adonai said to Yahweh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. So God said to God. The personal Lord said to the covenant Lord. So within the Godhead, the Lord says to the Lord, and Jesus actually cites this. I don't know if you know this. In Matthew 22, at the end, when he's disputing with the Pharisees, and they keep challenging him, he says, Jesus kind of just cuts through it all, and he says, I'm going to ask you a question. You answer me. Uh, the Christ, whose son is he? And they say, David's. And he says, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord. And he appeals to Psalm 110 and says that is the clearest verse. And then the writer of Hebrews will unpack this last verse and that Psalm in chapters five through seven, when he brings up Melchizedek, remember how Melchizedek's the type of Christ. And he says, you are a priest forever, citing Psalm 110. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110.1. I think it's Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So both are about Christ. Psalm 110 is about Christ. To which of the angels did the father ever say, sit at my right hand? Till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the answer, obviously, is to none of the angels, but to the Son. So you're already starting to see, I hope, in Psalm, in Hebrews 1, the importance of a Christological reading of the Psalms. That's what the writer's doing. He's showing us the Psalms, at least in part, or at least in part of part of the Psalms, are about Christ. Now, As we move into chapter 2, it's interesting that there's a reciprocal dialogue happening. So in chapter 1, all the citations are the Father speaking from the Old Testament, and in many of them, he's speaking to the Son about the Son. Now in chapter 2, the citations are going to be from the Old Testament, largely the Son speaking to the Father in the Old Testament. Super important. So notice this, Um, skip down to verse 11, and here talking about the incarnation and Christ taking flesh and blood to himself and becoming one by union with his people and everything he would do for us by virtue of our union with him and him becoming one like us in order to redeem us through death. Notice um, verse 12 He cites Psalm 22, which is clearly about the suffering Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how that starts. Jesus cries that out on the cross. Um, But after the first half of that psalm is about the sufferings of Jesus on the cross, the psalm turns because it's resurrection 
And then it talks about the fruit of the resurrection. So the first half of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Why are you so far from the voice of my crying? I cry to you day and night, but you're silent. You do not hear. That's Jesus being forsaken on the cross. And then the turning point says, you have heard me. And then verse 22, notice Hebrews 2.12. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So this is the son. This explicitly says that this is Jesus speaking in Psalm 22. That's what that's saying. The writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, the son, is speaking by his spirit through David in Psalm 22. And he's saying to the father, I will declare your name to my brethren. That's you if you're a Christian. I will declare your name. What did Jesus do? He declared the name of his father to his people. I will declare your name. This post-resurrection Jesus speaking in Psalm 22 to the father about what he's going to do for his brethren. And then notice, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. See, he's, he's affirming that he's the mediator and that he's standing in the midst of his people as the worship leader. We don't have a worship leader. Jesus is the worship leader. That's what that verse is saying. He's the one with the hymn book next to you, holding the hymn book, sharing that hymn book. Jesus is the one that leads his people in heavenly worship, and he's telling his father, I will be the mediator. I will be the worship leader. I will be the one leading my people. And then, um, uh, and I'll stop here because that's the last of the Psalms mentioned in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3 and 4, he will exposit Psalm 95 about not hardening your heart if you see God's mighty works and wonders. And there, he's obviously importing that and saying now, because of what God has done in Christ, through his death and resurrection, don't harden your heart. If you've seen his mighty works, if you've heard his word about Christ, don't harden your heart in unbelief. So that's kind of a start for us as we consider this. Now, I could easily do a, and we could do a semester of Sunday schools on this subject, and it might be profitable for us to come back and do more of that. But I want to walk through five categories by which we can read the Psalms and we can prayerfully and meditatively seek to understand how these are about Christ. Now, let me say this before I go into them. The Psalms are also about our spiritual experience. Uh, people kind of fall off on two sides two errors. There are guys that say everything's redemptive historical, everything's about Christ. And so that's one error. And then other people say everything's experiential, everything's about the Christian life. And that's the other error. So to divorce the indicatives, the facts of Christianity from the imperatives, the commands, to divorce the person of Christ from his work in his people and are working out what he's working in is an enormous error. And lots of people in our circles do it. Lots, there's debates in the reform world over this, and it seems so simple. The Old Testament is both about Jesus and for you who are trusting in Jesus. So it is both redemptive historical and it is experiential. 
Now, most people that go to the Psalms are just going to read them thinking, okay, what, how's this for me? What did David, what's David saying? How does that apply to my life? That's why we're doing this class this morning, because I think this is the harder. Now, let me say this before I give you these five categories. Um, how, do we, how do we come to a place where you can know I'm right about this? Well, I mean, I've walked you through Hebrews 1 and 2. That should be pretty self-evident. Um, but as you go through the whole of the New Testament, the book of Psalms is the most cited of all the books from the Old Testament. Now, it could be because there are 150 of them. There's a lot of content to work with. It could also be because, in the words of Athanasius and then supposedly Luther in different forms and fashions, the Psalms are a miniature Bible, unlike any other book in the Old Testament, so that everything you find in the Bible, you find in seed form in the Psalms. So if you took the Psalms out of the Bible... And then you went through the rest of the Bible and you systematically put all the doctrines about God and man and the Messiah and the church and eternal life and eternal destruction and everything else. Put out all your categories. All those are in the Psalms. Everything you find in the Bible is already in the Psalms. If you take everything about redemptive history and and what the altar points to, what the sacrifice points to, what the priest points to, what the temple points to, what the city points to, what all those things point to, and how they're spiritually realized in Jesus through his saving work, in the consummation, all the way from creation to consummation, you take all the biblical theology out of the Bible, and you find all that in the Psalms. So I think there's something to that. That's probably why the apostles quote the Psalms so much. Um, But I think one thing that we find as we go through the New Testament, and because you might ask the question, well, okay, if you're right, and many have asked this question, did the Old Testament prophets know all this? Well, no and yes. The Bible kind of answers that question two ways. Um, Peter at Pentecost um, preaches a sermon in which he brings Psalm 16. Remember I said that's one of those explicit messianic psalms. Brings a portion of Psalm 16 out in his sermon, one of the great first sermons of the New Covenant era, the great first sermon. And, And he exposits Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. It's the end of Psalm 16. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter goes, resurrection of Jesus. That's what that was about. He says, that Holy One, Jesus is the Holy One. He didn't rot in the tomb. Resurrection. That's, that's the sermon. And then repent and trust in him. That's, that's the sermon. That's the whole sermon. Look. Even Psalm 16 was about Jesus, the crucified one. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead as it was foretold in David in Psalm 16. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, what's so interesting about Acts 2 and Peter's use of Psalm 16, the very end of Psalm 16, is that Peter doesn't say... David wrote Psalm 16, and I'm here to tell you that was about Jesus. 
Acts 2.30. David, he being a prophet, knowing that God would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, and he's talking about resurrection, he foreseeing this spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. So I don't want to argue with an apostle. I mean, that seems like really self-evident, and it really isn't. There are hundreds of thousands of biblical scholars that are like, Old Testament saints didn't know it was about Jesus. Jesus and the apostles came along. They wrote a different ending, and they Christotelized it and made it about Jesus. He foreseeing this. David, being a prophet, how could he foresee it? He was a prophet. (laughs) The Holy Spirit made him foresee that he was speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that they knew everything we can know. Um, I think before we get to those five categories briefly, here's, here's what we need to remember. After the resurrection, remember Jesus is teaching the apostles, teaching the apostles, teaching the apostles, teaching the apostles, crucified, buried, raised, teaching the apostles, teaching the apostles, teaching the apostles, ascended. So what happens in the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension? Why did Jesus hang around for 40 days? Luke tells us to teach them, his, his disciples, his apostles, the things concerning the kingdom. Now, we know that some of the things he taught were all the things concerning himself from the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. So we know that during that 40 days, because Luke 24 tells us this, that what Jesus taught his disciples were all the things in the Old Testament about himself. We can be sure of that. Then the question you might have is, well, well, we don't know, though. Why didn't the Holy Spirit give us the things that Jesus taught? Wouldn't it be nice for us to have a recording, an audio recording of Jesus on the Emmaus Road opening the scriptures on a seven-mile walk? That's, it takes you 45 to 60 minutes a mile on a fast pace. That's seven hours of exposition. It's a lot of exposition. Seven hour uh, uh, lecture series, audio lecture series by Jesus on the Old Testament being about himself. Well, I think the answer is we do have what he says. We do have what he says because we have the apostolic sermons and writings. And so when the apostles are going in and they're mining out all these things and they're distributing all these things to us in the inspired scripture, we are essentially the recipients of the risen Jesus' teaching during that 40 days. We can be sure that Peter, when he proclaimed Psalm 16 about the resurrection, he got that from Christ, the risen Christ. We can be absolutely sure of that. We can be sure... The writer of Hebrews, whoever he, dare I say it, she, I don't know who it was, we don't know who it was, wrote the book of Hebrews. We can be sure whoever that was learned what they learned from those who were with Jesus during that 40 days because that writer tells us they heard those who were with him. And so all of those things are there for us. Now, as we kind of go through what we have in the New Testament, a big important thing for us to remember is that Genesis to Revelation is the only thing God's going to give us by way of revelation. That's it. It's the only revelation God's going to give us. 
Genesis to Revelation. In this life, it's the only revelation you're going to get from God. Inspired divine revelation. I'm not talking about providential working in your life. I'm talking about God speaking. That This is it. But what we need to be clear about is that Matthew to Revelation is not an, a comprehensive inspired commentary on the Old Testament. So it's not saying the only portions of the Old Testament that are about Christ are the ones that are explicitly stated in the New Testament. That's an error a lot of people make. The New Testament doesn't say it. I don't believe it. That, uh, let me put this as bluntly as I can. That's just plain ignorant. That's just ignorant and lazy. That's actually very lazy and very ignorant. Because as we go into the New Testament and we see what Jesus and the apostles are doing with the Old Testament, it's incumbent on us to go in there and to say, what's, what's happening? Why would, the, why would the serpent on the pole be about Jesus? How would Jesus know that the serpent on the pole was about him? Edmund Clowney says, it wasn't that Jesus is going through the Old Testament. He's like, ah, serpent on the pole, me. But that he knew God's working in redemptive history. He knew God's unfolding plan of redemption in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would come. He knew that through suffering, the Redeemer would uh, redeem his people and that by being lifted up, God would redeem and deliver his people through victory. And he knew that he would suffer and then would be lifted up both on the cross and unto glory. And so he could look back and Clowney says he could say, knowing all of that, here, this serpent on the pole in Numbers, everybody that looked at this serpent that was lifted up who had been bit by serpents is about me who redeems those who are bit by the sting of sin and Satan and death. So, so that's what the Bible's always about. And we have to look at how Jesus and... The apostles do this. So here are your five categories. I'm going to give them to you, and then I'm going to very, very quickly go through them. The first is typical messianic psalms. So you can write that down if you want. First category is messianic psalms in which David or Solomon or someone else is a type of Christ in their life. We'll come back and talk about that briefly. Typical messianic psalms. The second one is directly prophetic psalms. That's a different category. So there are other psalms where there are direct prophecies about the Redeemer in the psalm or the psalm in the whole. So typical messianic, direct prophetic, third, mystical messianic, and that has to do with um, the Redeemer and his union with his people, both speaking in the psalm. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then psalms of trust in Christ. So these would be those psalms in which David or the psalmist are crying out to the Lord, trusting in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they, they are psalms of trust, and they're trusting in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob through the promised Redeemer. That's how they're Christological, because they're trusting in God's salvation, and Jesus is the salvation of God. And then the fifth is creation, new creation, messianic psalms. So those psalms that point back to creation and forward to the new creation. And there's lots of them. Psalm 8 is the big one there. So let me just go through these briefly. I think there's more categories than these, but I hope that they'll be helpful to you. So typical Messianic psalms. Um, uh, Scottish 
Presbyterian named William Binney wrote one of the most excellent books on the Psalms ever, and he noted, quote, David's history from first to last was a kind of acted parable of the sufferings and glories of Christ. So if you looked at David's life and you superimposed over it the filter of the son of David's life in the Gospels, you would see tremendous parallels, right? Jesus himself tells us a greater than David is here, right? David is the righteous king, the shepherd of Israel. Jesus is the righteous king, the shepherd of Israel. David is despised by his brothers. Jesus is despised by his brothers. Jesus is chosen out from among his brothers. David is. Jesus is chosen out from among his brethren. Um, uh, David is hated and persecuted. Jesus is hated and persecuted. David has a betrayer, a guy named Ahithophel, who was actually Uriah's father-in-law. Jesus has a betrayer, Judas. Um, when David speaks about being betrayed by his friend in Psalm, I believe, 35 and definitely 69, those end up in the New Testament about Judas. So God puts those in the New Testament for us. He ta- they were about David, typically, but they're pointing forward to the greater David. Remember, David walks through the grain fields. I'm sorry, David eats the showbread with his mighty men, which was not lawful for anybody to eat when he's fleeing from Saul. Jesus points to that when he's walking through the grain fields, plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath with his disciples. And he says, look, David ate what was unlawful. In your opinion, here I'm eating with my disciples what you think is unlawful. It's the parallels everywhere. Um, David is chased across the brook Kidron by Ahithophel and Absalom and those pursuing David. Jesus crosses the brook Kidron when he goes to the cross when Judas and the chief priests and the scribes betray him and pursue him and arrest him and, and put him to death. So you have all these different types. You also have a type in Solomon, and I'll move quickly through this. Psalm 72 is a Psalm of Solomon that talks about the king's reign from the river to the ends of the earth. And remember, God promised that he would establish his kingdom forever um, from one end of heaven to the other. And that never happened fully under Solomon. It only happens typically. So it's a type of what actually happens in Jesus. So when we read Psalm 72, we should not just be thinking Solomon. We should be thinking the greater Solomon. Um, That's always been helpful to me, uh, even when I was a young Christian. So, um, when the psalmist speaks of the altar, Psalm 26, 6, 43, 4, 51, 19, 84, 3, 110, 27, how can we not see that that's typical of the cross? When the psalmist talks about the altar, where the animals were sacrificed, that's pointing forward to the altar of the cross on which the Lamb of God was sacrificed. When the psalmist talks about bulls and goats and sacrifices, that's about Christ. Those were all types of the coming Christ. So there are types littered throughout the psalms. Uh, Second category, directive, predictive, uh, prophetic psalms. And I'll just briefly say this, Psalm 22. It's not about David. I don't buy that at all. You will read commentators that say, here's David. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he takes up the words of David and owns them for himself. These are, this is Christ speaking prophetically through David. It's not about David. 
I would argue with you about that. John Owen, if he were alive, be weird because he'd be really old. He would definitely argue with you about that. Um, he, he, he argues for pages how Psalm 22 is only about Christ and that the spirit of Christ is predicting the sufferings and glories of Christ in Psalm 22. So there are Psalms, not all of them. You're like, well, which ones? You got to work. You got to study. You got to pray. You got to meditate. You can't just have somebody give you all the answers. You're never going to have all the answers. But Psalm 22, I think as we really meditate on it, we come to terms with the fact that it's, it's messianic in a prophetic sense, exclusively speaking forward prophetically. Now, mystical messianic, very quickly. There are Psalms that the New Testament cites that they'll cite a portion of it, like Psalm 40. And a body you have prepared for me. In the scroll of the volume of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus. That's Jesus, exclusively. Psalm 40, Jesus is speaking. In the scroll of the volume of the book, that's the Bible, the Old Testament, it's written of me, because it's about him, I delight to do your will. So the first half of Psalm 140, the first, I think, 11 verses, I believe are about Christ. It's Christ speaking, not David as a type of Christ, not necessarily prophetic. It is prophetic in nature. But then the second half of the psalm is David confessing his sins. Now, this gets very difficult because if you're reading Psalm 40, 40, sorry, if you're reading Psalm 40 and you know from the New Testament that part of it's about Christ, but then there's the psalmist confessing sin, that gets very confusing. You can see how people are saying, well, wait a minute, how's that about Christ if The psalmist is confessing his sin and Jesus didn't have any sin. I think what you have, in the words of Binny, is a mystical messianic psalm. Here, it's Christ speaking, but then it's the psalmist speaking. And the way they can do that at different parts is because they are mystically united. And Christ would take the sin of the psalmist on himself by virtue of union with him. And so when David's confessing his sin... We can see him, in a sense, um, by God passing that sin to the Redeemer. And the Redeemer taking the punishment of that sin in order to forgive that sin by mystical union. So I think there's something to that. Now, Psalms of Trust in Christ, again, super easy. These are perhaps the easiest ones. Because you could go from here, forget everything I said. Never study this subject another second of your life, which would be tragic. And you could go from here and start reading the Psalms and, and just read them all as Psalms of Trust. There are Reformed guys that teach you. That's what the Psalms are there for. To stir up your experiential devotion and trust. Every part of every Psalm. That's true. But only in so much as you see the Redeemer in them. And only in so much as you are trusting God through Christ. Because you can't trust him. And Old Testament saints could not trust him apart from the Redeemer. Remember all that the New Testament says, Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced to see it and was glad. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater treasures than the riches of Egypt. So we're told explicitly in the New Testament, Old Testament saints were trusting in the coming Redeemer. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he shall stand upon the earth. So when David is crying out to the Lord and trusting the covenant God of promise, 
He is trusting in light of the hope of the coming Redeemer and redemption. So when David says things like, blessed are all those who know your salvation, he is reflecting on the coming fulfilled salvation in Jesus. He doesn't know it to the full the way we do, but these are psalms of trust in Christ. And then the last one, creation, new creation, messianic psalms. Now, um, this could be a whole other Sunday school, and every one of these could be. Um, writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 5 through 10, quotes Psalm 8, which is a creation psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set all things in dominion under him, all sheep and oxen, fish of the sea, birds of the air. So creation psalm. Writer of Hebrews cites a portion of that. Says, what is man that you're mindful of him, son of man that you take care of him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor. And then he says, yet we don't see everything put under man. That was God's intent at creation. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Son of man, crowned with glory and honor, through the suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everybody. So what the writer of Hebrews does is he says, any psalm of creation needs to be read through the lens of what God is doing to redeem that creation through Jesus and how he's going to bring about the new creation, the original purpose that Adam failed in through the second Adam, the son of man, who represents those that are trusting in him. Oh, that any psalm about creation that's dealing with God's original intent at creation needs to be read in light of what God is doing in the work of redemption in Christ to fulfill that original intention by bringing about the new creation because Adam failed to do what God originally intended And Jesus, as the second Adam and the Son of Man, does it as the representative of all those who are trusting in him. I know that's very verbose. I'm sorry. Okay, other questions? Yes. No, by union with Christ, I think that's what I was trying to say, that there's a sense where Jesus owns our sin as his own. And so while he has no personal sin, he becomes sin for us because of our sin imputed to him. So it's altogether appropriate, I think, to see it first as David confessing his sin and us taking ownership for the enormity of our guilt, but then also seeing it in light of our union with Christ and that it's not proper to say he repents for us. That's some language I want to stay away from. But it is proper to see in David's confession of sin that by virtue of his union with Christ, Jesus is taking ownership of that sin as the one who is going to become that sin for David and for us on the cross by way of imputation. I think, is that kind of what you're, yeah. 
think that's helpful. Does that make sense to everybody that when you confess your sins and you're trusting in Jesus, you can be assured that Jesus has taken that sin on himself. So it's as if it is his own sin, though he never sinned. Good. Yes. You tell them to read the New Testament, read their Bible. I mean, seriously, somebody's not reading their Bible if they believe that. Like, I understand there's more to it than that. But at the end of the day, somebody is not reading the New Testament carefully, contextually, and prayerfully and spiritually if they think the Old Testament was just for national Israel. Remember, the Apostle Paul says, All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Not all the messianic prophecies, but all the promises. So everything God promises Abraham is for us. Um, And in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul says, what was written before was written for us. So I, you know, I think just encourage people to read the New Testament contextually is the big, it's the big thing. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Please give us a love for your word, and we pray that you'd open our eyes to see your son in the scriptures. We pray as we come to the ministry of your word and the service that you would abundantly bless to that end. We ask, Lord, that you would also give us a deep commitment to living out the Christian life as we have professed to believe in your son. We pray that you would give us your spirit to that end and the scriptures to that end, that we would learn the prayers of the Psalms and learn to trust you as the psalmist trusted you, to repent of our sin as he repented, and to hope in the uh, new heavens and new earth as he hoped in them. And so, Father, please do these things for us and in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.